I don't know who's more excited about the fact that we live on coastline, my kids or me. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, and it's basically high desert. It's arid. It's landlocked. The uh, closest, uh, closest, I guess the closest ocean would be like probably going to the Gulf of Mexico, maybe. It's kind of a toss-up between going there or going to the Pacific. Either way, you're talking like a couple of days of driving. It's not, not close at all. And, and my lakes were all reservoirs, and they, they had their own kind of tidal shift that, that basically they fill up in the wintertime, and then they turn into mud holes uh, in the summer. And, and sometimes it was a year or so before you got the water level back up to the boat dock. Uh, and so that, that kind of made it for a bummer if you wanted to actually go out and do anything on a lake. And, and then that model only got more pronounced as I went over to uh, West Texas for college. We had a lake outside of Abilene um, at a place called Fort Phantom. Uh, but more often than not, it was more of a place to go get your Jeep stuck uh, than to put a boat into. Um, and, and, and swimming was kind of out of the question. You did not really want to go swim. Sarah's going, yeah, no, no, no. And so these clear inlets of ocean and their, their tide pools and kind of this fern choked greenery that we find ourselves in, in these old growth forests. I mean, they still really captivate me. Um, they really do with a lot of wonder at their majesty and their delicacy. Whenever I see them, I am, I'm, I'm actually very, very, I, James, you know exactly where that is, right? James was my tour guide that introduced me to where that video was taken um, and introducing me to, to so many great hiking spots around here when we moved here. And this one on the McKenzie Bite Trail, it's over in Gallon Todd uh, Park, and it's, it's still one of my favorites because anytime you can combine harbor seal sightings with waterfall viewings in one hike and it's about a 10-minute drive, like that's just a win all around, okay? It's great. Um, I highly, highly recommend you going out there and taking a look around because it is beautiful. Um, and with the wonder of, that e- of this ecosystem also comes an awareness of my ignorance. As it, on my part, I'm still very much learning about how it all functions um, in, in a very, very different way than where I grew up, how this all works and how it all functions together. Um, and, and as well, how to appropriately interact with it and how to cultivate it. Um, my image of tearing around a lake bed in a Jeep may seem a little strange to you, kind of foreign, maybe a little bit irresponsible. Um, but it's, that's kind of established that that's well within the acceptable limits of the geography and the laws in West Texas. Um, in Colorado, there's still great freedom of use for trail trail use and off-roading and, and working on Bureau of Land Management land and, you know, being able to do a lot of things there. But there are more developed restrictions. And when I moved to Washington State, they were more developed. Um, and, and here the restrictions are so great that actually to have access to many of the trails, that's actually kept secret from public knowledge. You actually have to go with somebody that's, that's already in the know on kind of like a test run so that they can make sure that you're not one of these yahoos that's going to go tearing around in the forest and mess it up for everybody else and get the trail closed for everybody. Um, so you can't, just, you can't just go and look for a website that's like, hey, show me where the off-roading trails are on Vancouver Island. It won't tell you. Instead, there's a forum. There's a group of people that go, hey, if you want to learn, you can go out with us. We'll take you on a trial run in your rig, and we'll see whether you actually have the knowledge and the responsibility to do this or not. 
And if you do, then you can kind of become a part of this group and start going out with us and learning where these places are. But if you're not, then we're not going to let you out there, which I think is kind of a good way to approach it. Um, but I guess for me, um, jeeping is kind of an example of this idea of stewardship. It's one that's in flux for many of us. How do we use the freedom that we have to enjoy and explore and develop and live in the world around us while still being subject to the necessary responsibilities that keep us from exploiting it or ruining it? Where is that? Where is that place? And and I'm not just talking about environmentalism here. Let, let me be very, very clear, okay? This is, this is a sermon about so much more than responsible use of the environment because the idea that we see in the Bible about dominion, about reigning, is so much bigger than that. And, and I think sometimes we've made it very, very narrow because this is a very wide-ranging thing for God. And, and I want us to make sure that we're looking at it this way. But, but there seem to be no end to the opinions on fo- of folks on how those things are supposed to interact, but the understanding of how we are created in relationship to the rest of creation is a big part, not only understanding our purpose as humanity, but also understanding the intentions and the aspirations of God for his universe. The role that we play in that is a big part of understanding what God actually wants to do with his creation, what God actually plans for the universe. Our reading this morning in Romans 8 it is kind of both a, a backward and a forward-looking passage at the same time in the context of where we are in the present. Now, Paul actually has the passage that we've read. It's all, it's all situated in this discussion about the life and the hope that the Holy Spirit provides to someone who has been released from the slavery of the unattainable law, the slavery of, of, of realizing that I cannot be who I was created to be of my own will. The way that God desires for me to be because of the frustration of trying to do it my own way, I've actually backed myself into a corner to where I can't be that. It's impossible. And yet if I'm willing to allow God to free me from that and instead bind myself to his spirit rather than my own ambition to keep his commandments and I allow his spirit to come in and work in me in that way, then I actually have allowed God to open the door to be able to keep his commandments. It seems kind of backward in some ways, but it's a very, very beautiful thing. It is actually when I allow God to have the control that I am actually able to begin to get a little bit of control over my life. And, and, and so all of this is in the context of what the Spirit is doing and the Spirit bringing freedom. And so we have to, I, we, we can't just rip this out of that context. It is, it is situated firmly in this idea of the Spirit bringing life, the Spirit bringing redemption, and the Spirit bringing transformation. But now we are bound to the service of Christ Jesus. We are empowered by His Spirit. We are fueled by His grace, but fueled for what? That's the question. And this is one of the things that Paul is trying to give us a vision of, okay? For both being able to imagine the hope of a redeemed life and to participate in, redemp- in that redemption, not just for us, but for the world around us. That's what we're being fueled for. That's what we're being filled for. That's what we're being empowered for. 
it's not just, to, it's not just this idea that, that, that the Spirit coming into my life makes me whole. The Spirit coming into my life actually empowers me to be everything that I was intended to be. And a big piece of that is that I, you and I, we, humanity, were intended to be God's agents of creation. I think it's really, really interesting um, that, that Paul's words tie the human condition to the condition of the universe in our reading in, in four big ways. First, if you, look at, if you look at this passage in Romans 8, 18 through 24, 25, sorry. If you look at it, first off, you see that both creation and humanity have been subjected to this. It, it, he, he calls it subjected to frustration or frustrated by, but, but subjected to this idea of ruin, of decay. I, science would call it entropy, that things, they don't stay together, okay? Um, if you go into my kid's room right now, you will see a study in entropy at work, okay? You tidy it up, you clean it up, you go in the next day, and you're like, what happened? And you bring everybody in, and you go, okay, who did this? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, well, it ha- something had to happen. The, 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 the drawers did not just open themselves, and the clothes went, ah, like out on the floor. Like, that didn't, that didn't just happen on its own, did it? I don't know, Dad. It, I, I don't know. And, and I seriously think they don't know. And, we, and it's the same for us. Is it not the same for us as we look at the world that we live in? Like, you know, like, how did, how? I don't know. I don't know. Like, do my best to kind of clean things up and order my life up and order the world around me up. And it just, you know, it just, it, it decays. It goes to ruin. It, it doesn't stay fixed. How does this happen? I don't know. I just know that it happens. And, and, so, and so both that, I can look at that in my life internally. I can also look at that at, at creation at large. Things break down. They just do. And, and so both of us have been subjected to the frustration that comes from the fact that the way that we want things to be, it does not stay that way. It breaks down. But then through the work of Christ... There is a liberation that comes. There is a salvation that comes. And that salvation is not just happening, and that redemption is not just happening to humanity, it is also happening to the universe. The universe gets to participate in that as well. And the universe is participating in that as well. And so then what we see Paul saying is now because... Now because even though there is the reality of this ruin, there is the reality of this decay, there is the reality of, of tragedy and horror and just messiness and, and whatever you want to call it all around us, yet we're kind of in this, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, like this idea of being threshold people where we kind of live with a foot in each place. We live with a foot in the reality of the ruin, but we also live with a foot in the reality of redemption at the same time. There is this liberation, there is this salvation, there is this transformation that's happening, but it's not done yet. And so there is this longing that is born up out of us, but there is also this great longing that is born up out of creation. There is this groaning, Paul says. And it's not, the thing I love about, 
love about the image is it's not a groaning, it's not a longing that's unsatisfied. It's, 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 it's not for nothing. It is a longing for something that we know will happen. It is a longing for something that we know will be fulfilled. God is going to make this right. That is not in question. The hows, we're fuzzy on that, okay? The whens, we're really fuzzy on that. But the fact that God's going to make this right, not just inside of me, not just the broken, not just the ruin inside of me, but but even just the ruin that I see or the disorder that I see or the, the lack of resolution that I see in all of creation, in my relationships, in our social structures, in government, in, in any, name, name your sphere of influence, okay, whatever it may be. The fact that God's going to make it right is not in question. And so we don't long for something that we don't really know anything about. We know what God is going to do. And so with that longing now, both creation and humanity are driven by hope. There is this hope that both of us are going to re- be redeemed in Christ's likeness fully. For as humanity is restored, so will the world that we are a part of be restored and expressed in Christ's likeness fully as well. And so we're driven by this hope. Okay, I, I cannot stress how not passive these words are that Paul lays down here. Okay? This is not an image, this, this word of hope and this word of anticipation, they are not, they do not convey the image of somebody sitting around waiting for God to show up. That is not what these words are. The idea is that we are driven by hope, we are empowered by hope, we are moving forward in hope. That actually this anticipation of what God is going to do creates a surge of activity on our part as humanity. Because we know that heaven is moving closer. The reality of God is moving closer to us every day. And that doesn't, let me put it this way. Okay, illustration time again. Okay, changing it up. My daughter came and talked to me about her birthday the other day. Okay, about a week ago. My daughter's birthday is in August. Okay. Perfect time to start planning. It's January, Dad. It's time to start getting ready for my birthday in August. Right. Absolutely. But the idea is she's not just sit, she she is anticipating this idea of her of the party and the celebration and the getting older and the growing up and all that stuff. And we're not going to sit around and wait for that to happen. We're going to start making plans now. Okay. We're going to start talking about what we want the cake to be. Now we're going to start talking about where we want to go now and what the guest list is going to be like now and I'm and I'm going okay cool let's roll with it because on the I mean on the one hand that I mean on the one hand you could say look that that is so child that there's so many things for me to think about before then okay or I can say you know what like yes let's anticipate the celebration that is coming Let's anticipate what is, you know, even though, we don't, even though it's a ways off, but I mean, let's be real. 
I've got a fixed date for my daughter. Do- I've got a fixed date for my daughter's birthday. I do not have a fixed date for when God is going to finish all this stuff. For all I know, it could be today. For all I know, we may not even make it through the sermon. Not that I'm going to stretch it to try and see if we can get there. But, but I, we don't know. I don't have a fixed date. So why would I sit around waiting for it if it's that close already? If I know that it's any day now, if I know that, then that anticipation would drive me to move forward into the promise, not sit around waiting for the promise to happen. And that's what Paul, that's, that's the way Paul describes our state, not just our state as humanity, but also the state of creation. That creation is surging forward in this anticipation of the day when God is going to make it all right. Now, I think that if we're looking backwards, and again, like this passage looks backward and forwards, it should kind of stand in contrast to maybe some of the more popular understandings that we seem to have of how humanity is interacting with creation. I give you this example on the next slide. Yeah. If you don't know what this is, don't worry. If you happen to have seen this while browsing through the titles of Netflix, don't watch it. Okay? Don't do it. You will get done and you will say, Lord, there are two hours of my life. I can never get back, ever, ever. Okay? And yet, just the sheer absurdity of it, you pass by it and you look at it and you say, somehow we're combining tornadoes and great white sharks. And somebody said, this would be a good idea for a movie. I don't know. But what I do know, but what I do know is that, it, that this is like on the far end of a scale of like disaster movie understanding about creation. That somehow this idea of creation being frustrated or the world around us being frustrated means that we're all just, we're just inevitably moving to the apocalypse, okay? And, 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 and creation is just against us, okay? It is against us. And through earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes, and, and tornadoes filled with great white sharks. Creation is going to get back at us for what we've done to it. Okay? That seems to be the popular notion, and sometimes that's how we read the account of Genesis. Is this idea that, like, God set everything up, and then, he, and then here comes humanity, like, kicking over things in the garden. And God goes, no, done, out, out of the pool. Get out. What have you done? You know, and, and, and that now, because that's gotten all messed up, now all of a sudden, we are against the universe. And I don't think that's really where God is going with this idea. Okay. And I, I would also say this, if we're looking at Genesis 1 through 3 as a blow-by-blow blow of what and how it happened, we are kind of missing the point. Genesis is going, okay, why are things the way that they are? That is, the, that is, that is, what, the writer of the, that is what the writers of Genesis, infused by the Holy Spirit, are trying to communicate. They're trying to be like, okay, why are things the way that they are? 
And, and I think that that helps us to keep from inappropriately inserting our ideas over the top of what God's word is trying to say. To make it say what we already think. Or to make it say what our, our fancies might think. Okay? If we look particularly at both the formal creation account in Genesis 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. And then we look at the more raw account that we have from Genesis 2 4 on. Part of the initial formation of creation includes this idea that it's going to have a special relationship and a reliance on humanity. And at the same way, humanity is going to have a special relationship and a responsibility to creation. Chapter 1, verses 28 through 30 uses the term rule or dominion to describe the relationship of humanity over creation. And given our human understanding, I think that term kind of assaults our senses a little bit more than it should. Because that's not really, it's not really the entire idea. Okay? And so you look at the other passage, you look in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and God talks about what humanity is going to do there, and it casts a little more artistic, a little more creative bent to it. Humanity's purpose in the world is to shape and to refine and to grow and to protect the world. And so you put both of these images together, the idea of having the authority to rule and to have dominion, and at the same time being protectors and shapers and creators and growers. And you put those, those two things together, and now you get the idea a little bit of what it means to be a steward of creation. And that's really humanity's, this, this, this really humanity's destiny. It establishes some really significant things about us. Our destiny is to live and to flourish in God's world. Okay, and there's two parts to that. Because on the one hand, our destiny is to live and to flourish in God's world. But on the other side, our destiny is to live and to flourish in God's world. Do you understand the de- emphasis mine on both sides, right? I am not called to live and flourish in a world of my own making. Nor am I meant to be just a passive passenger in the world of God's making. I am meant to live and to flourish, to actively be working in God's world on God's terms. Both of those things have to come together for me to understand what I was created to do in order to have this idea that, I, that we as humanity were created to reign. We aren't reigning over a kingdom of our own making. It doesn't work that way. This destiny is a God-incepted thing, and we're designed to do it in his world, tied in partnership with the rest of creation and on his terms. And this also means that creation itself exists to be in a relationship with us, not autonomous to us. Um, there's, there's a study that came out, again, I'll go back to Colorado, my hometown. Back in the early 80s, we did a lot of camping, and, and all of a sudden there was this ban in, in about the early to mid-80s where we used to be able to just go out and pick up firewood and bring it in and make a fire. Seems like a relatively normal idea. And, all of, and then all of a sudden it was, boom, statewide ban, okay? Camping areas, forests, no, no firewood pickup. Cannot, no. We are, we are inappropriately interacting, okay? Now, and, and we all kind of went, ah, okay. And, you know, then we went down to the store and started paying, like, I don't know, 
unholy amounts for, you know, a bundle of firewood this big. Something really interesting has happened since that. They're doing studies, realizing that the forest fires have gone through the roof. The, 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 the occurrences, the size, the damages, the, everything, okay? It has, it has increased exponentially since we said, stop messing with it. And so in, in some ways, there's kind of, the, you know, you think of there's this kind of this pendulum swing that, that, yes, I mean, we're not designed to exploit and ruin things in our path, but at the same time, we're not designed to just, you know, keep our hands off of everything either. It doesn't work that way either. God sees creation as full of potential, and when he adds a population of humans that are under his direction to be fruitful and grow in relationship creation, then and only then is it pronounced very good. Our ideas of being subject to creation or refusing to interact with creation, those are as out of line with what God wants as wanton exploitation. Okay, It's not either of those. And yet most of what we see in our popular understanding is either don't care about it, just do whatever you want, or don't mess with it at all, leave it alone. And, 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 and it seems, again, you know, that balance, the balance that God desires is something that we swing through on the way to the other extreme, right? One side or the other. And again, I think there's a bigger realization here as well. Um, the, the scholar Walter Brueggemann, he notes that in both of the accounts, God establishes three really essential pieces of the destiny of humanity. Explicitly. He says there is vocation, there is permission, and there's prohibition. And, and we've tended only to hear the prohibition. Don't eat from that tree, he says. And that's the part, you know, that's the part that we tend to emphasize, right? And we miss this wide range of calling to action and this great range of freedom to interact with and draw enjoyment from the world around us and what exists. That is what makes up the bulk of God's instructions to humanity in Genesis. What is critical is that that calling to be effective stewards of all that surround us and the freedom to do so, it can't exist without that third piece, the prohibition piece. They all have to work together. We actually have a great amount of calling. We actually have a great amount of freedom, but we can't do that without doing it within the boundaries of God. And that's what we see. We, we tend to hear a lot of vindictive or a lot of punitive language in Genesis 3 as though God is acting out of anger at humanity flaunting the rules. And I don't think that's really, I don't think that's what's going on. I, there's no indication, like read the text, just read it. And go, where does it say, and then the anger of the Lord burned against them? Okay, like it's not there. It's not there. In fact, it's, in fact, if you look at the language, it's very much like, it's very like, it's very much when my kids do something and I have to explain to them what's going on now. Okay, be, because the room is a mess, we will now have to do this. Or because you broke this and dad does not have the duct tape and the super glue and the supernatural knowledge to fix it, it is now broken. We will ha- you will have to earn the money to buy a new one or, or whatever, okay? That's the language that's being used. It's not, you know, God's not going, that's it. I'm, look at the mess you made. He is just very simply going, look, cause and effect, okay? Because this, then this. What we need to understand, it's, it's, it's actually autonomy 
this notion that I get to be captain of my own existence, that the choices that I make affect only me, that, that, that my being created to reign means I get to carve out my own kingdom of reality and choice. That is what initiates the ruin and the decay and the discord in a systemic way. And if you look at what it is, God, God ranges it really, really wide. He says, it's gonna me- he says I, I set things up to work a certain way, and because we have moved outside of that, it's going to mess with us internally, it's going to mess with us relationally, it's going to mess with us socially, it's going to mess with us environmentally, it's going to cause division where God has not created division, it's going to do all these things. And because we are so enmeshed with our world, because we're not autonomous, because we weren't created to be autonomous, because we're enmeshed, it gets dragged down with us. And that was the perpetuating model until our redemption in Christ. Which brings us back to this image of Romans, of this groaning, this hoping, this surging forward with great anticipation. Because Paul has looked back, now Paul looks forward. And he gives us another image, this one at the end of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, okay? Clay was with me while I was looking for slides for, for this, and he, and he looked around, and we're looking through them, and he goes, I hope it looks way better than that. Well played, son, well played. I agree. I agree. I how, you, how do you show a slide, PowerPoint slide image of heaven? You don't. You just, you, you, you sift around and you look for the best thing possible and you go, okay, this is not it. But, but now you understand what I'm trying to say. I, the images of Revelation that, that are at the end are, are images of both conclusion and anticipation. John shows this fulfillment of all that God's been planning from the beginning of the garden. And now these dwelling places of man, cities. And it's interesting because cities are originally constructed by Cain when he leaves and goes east of Eden and goes outside of God's plan and sets up human civilization far away from where, and it looks like these two things are diametrically opposed to one another. You've got, you've got the garden, the symbolizing the way God wants things to be, and cities symbolizing man going off and doing their own thing. And now all of a sudden those things have gone and gotten blended together perfectly. I think it's such a cool image. And we kind of, it's just, it just kind of gets like tripped over. But that, that in the middle of this heavenly city of Jerusalem, there is a garden. And in that garden is life. And the garden and the city are just all together. Everything that God intended creation to be, everything that, that, that he intended humanity to engineer and, and, and be ingenious in, it's all working like it's supposed to. It's not at odds with each other. And, and creation and humanity get restored to one another, and the stewardship and destiny of humanity is able to find its zenith again. And John offers really few details as to what it looks like. He just kind of lays out this thing. He just says, there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any curse on this. There will no longer be any limitation. There will no longer be any ruin on this. There will no longer be any frustration on any of this. And it leaves all the mystery and the imagination intact while still providing the assurance that it's going to happen. We're going to be able to live in harmony with everyone and everything around us. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
with the rest of creation, with the rest of humanity, with God himself. Nothing gets sacrificed and nothing gets abandoned in this passing away of the old order of things. It's not like we leave this broken, flaming creation behind and go to heaven. I really love that idea. I really love the idea that it's not like creation is this old discarded shell that we kick off and go somewhere else to go to heaven. It's that heaven moves into creation and redeems all of us. That's the image that John gives us. And the really tantalizing piece of all this idea of, of heaven is that it's an active state. I can't, just like, just like the hope and the anticipation are not passive things where we're sitting around waiting, if you were, if you were anticipating that heaven was going to be like this really awesome retirement plan, you need to think again. You really do. And again, there's not, he's really sparse with the details, but he drops three really big things about the life of the disciple in heaven, in eternity. We will serve God, we will worship him, and we will be incorporated into the reign of his kingdom. He just drops them out. Mind-blowing, okay? Because this is the thing that I think is amazing. This idea of reigning incorporated in the dominion and the cultivation of stewardship, it's on a completely different level. Just stop and think about this for a second with me. Chew on this idea. What could we create or explore, or develop, or grow, or be a part of with unlimited time, unlimited resources, glorified, magnified, super whatever bodies that are like Jesus, okay, and the blessing and the guidance of Almighty God. It makes Star Trek look like child's play. It makes it look like Barney, okay? It's It's amazing. Like, just think about that for a second. It goes beyond my ability to comprehend now, but it will be. C.S. Lewis put it this way at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. The things that began to happen after that time were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures up to this point had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has yet read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that. I love that. And we find ourselves, as Paul has described us, possessed of the knowledge of how these things were before Christ came, possessed of the hope that things will be this way, and yet kind of stuck in the middle where, like, we're not there yet. So what do we do? What does it mean for us to do these things Paul describes, to actively hope, to surge forward in anticipation? Here's, here's kind of the so what, I think, of this sermon. Part of it is having vision again. Do you have vision like Christ? Do you have the vision to see the world the way that he sees it? And part of it, I think, is seeing that human-engineered solutions to restore harmony to creation or to race or to gender or to, co- to economy or to politic or any of the other areas that we continually find ourselves circling around trying to find equilibrium. 
human-based solutions to those things are going to be impossible to achieve. Okay? We're not ever going to be transhuman without the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? Like, we don't get to do this by ourselves. These things are divinely infused ideas. And approaching them by ourselves as humans only serves the purpose of circling back around to the same entropy and wondering why, when we try to fix it, it won't stay fixed. Okay? That shouldn't be depressing for us, though. That should be motivating for us to instead surge forward into the Spirit of God. And in fact, this is kind of where we're picking up. We're, transi- we're transitioning we're, we're finishing up this series on what we were created for. Ultimately, we were created to be agents of God's Spirit. And we're going to be talking over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And talking about what does it look like to walk deeply in the Spirit? What does it look like to be an agent of the Holy Spirit? What does that actually look like? Knowledge and hubris by itself are not going to win the day. God's Spirit is. And we are called to be agents of his redemptive spirit now. It's not something where we're called to slog through ruin until someday Jesus comes and fixes it all. The spirit of God is able to work in us now to engineer the beginning of all the things that God is bringing to fulfillment. I believe that scripture says that. Do you believe that scripture says that? Do you believe not only that Scripture says that, but do you believe that that's what he's called you to be and who he's called you to, to, to act out of? That, that is your identity in Christ. That is why you were created. Christians are not called to be pessimists of our social, environmental, or anthropological messes. Instead, we should be confident in the ability of God to use us as his disciples again. In spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our failures, he is going to establish his reign over creation through us as agents of redemption, as agents of transformation. So at the beginning of this series, we landed on this idea that we were created for a purpose and that the gospel has infused us with the ability to live to the praise of God's glory. And where we finish this series is much in the same place. God has infused us with the power of his spirit, with the ability to be agents of redemption. And that truly is the purpose that we were created for. It is, it is as wide-ranging and as imaginative as we are, even more so. Nothing brings God more glory than when we allow him to be at work in us to restore harmony with his world, with his relationships, to heal divisions. Nothing brings him more glory than that. Nothing is more glorious to God than when we believe and we live out of the conviction that he's working in us to bring about shalom, to bring about peace, to bring about wholeness to everything that exists. And so, church, my prayer for us is that we will go and live out of that hope. Don't just let it be this nice idea that you're waiting for God to do. Go live out of it. Go be out of it. Your job is redemptive. Your family is redemptive. Your hobbies are redemptive. Your existence is redemptive. Everything you do. It's not just redemptive for you. It's redemptive for everybody around you. Everything around you. What would your life look like 
if you weren't just possessed of the belief, but you were able to live out of that conviction? That's a question that we get to, to ask ourselves every day. And so let us live out of that hope and let us live out of that anticipation that each step into that realm is a step into the realized eternity of God with us and us with him serving and living forever. That should bring a lot of joy. And that should bring a lot of excitement. And so let's stand and let's express that in worship together now.